1: Hi there, Tom Switzer here, and thank you for joining me on Between the Lines. Now, this week, we learned that Donald Trump called Scott Morrison to help investigate how the Russia-Trump probe started. Now, according to my guest, Pat Buchanan, that's entirely legitimate. After all, the American people deserve to get an honest accounting of the spying of US intelligence on the Trump presidential campaign in 2016. However, my other guest, Eleanor Clift, she says there's a clear link between the Trump-Morrison episode and Trump putting the strong arm on the Ukrainian president to help him win in 2020. And later on, a tribute to Jacques Chirac. The French president copped intense criticism for opposing the Iraq invasion in 2003. But has history proved him right? Well, Donald Trump is facing the gravest threat to his presidency. That's the consensus in Washington. He's tried to coerce the Ukrainian president into investigating former vice president and potential rival Joe Biden and Biden's son, Hunter. Now, the episode gives us a sense of how this president interacts with world leaders behind closed doors. However, does Trump's effort to have a foreign government dig up dirt on a political rival, does that amount to an impeachable offence? Will impeachment fatally damage Trump in an election year, or could it backfire on the Democrats, especially the party's presidential frontrunner, Joe Biden, who's embroiled in his own Ukraine crisis? And by the way, how does Australia fit in here? Well, we're lucky to ask two of Washington's most seasoned observers of US politics. Pat Buchanan was an advisor to Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. He's author of several influential books, including his two volumes on Richard Nixon. And Eleanor Clift is a columnist with the Daily Beast and a contributor to MSNBC. Both Pat and Eleanor were regular guests on the popular NBC show, The McLaughlin Group, a weekly, long-running political punditry forum for decades. That now airs on American Public Television every Friday. It's available online. It's one of my favourite shows. Pat, Eleanor, welcome back to RN. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Well, Pat, let's start with you. Trump's behavior in attempting to coerce the Ukrainian president into investigating the Bidens, does that indicate an impeachable offense?
2: Well, it depends on who you are and where you're sitting in the Congress of the United States. I think the Democrats uh, believe it is an impeachable offense. I think Nancy Pelosi is going to try to use it to fast-track impeachment through the House by the end of the year On a single count, alleging a quid pro quo that Trump uh, was going to hold up American military aid to Ukraine, conditioned on whether or not they helped us investigate or look into what Joe and Hunter Biden were doing back several years ago when Hunter Biden was making $50,000 a month in Ukraine. Uh, My view is the uh, the Democrats do have the votes for an inquiry on impeachment. I don't think they're there yet to impeach Uh, And I think if they do impeach and send it over to the Senate, it will be flatly rejected. And I think it will basically backfire on the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah, that's a view of David Brooks too, uh, Eleanor. David Brooks in the New York Times says people will conclude that Democrats are going ahead with impeachment in an election year because they don't trust the Democratic process to yield the right outcome. Democratic elites to voters, we don't trust you.
0: How would you respond to Pat and David Brooks? I think there's political risk here for the Democrats, but there's also political risk for the Republicans. And uh, Speaker Pelosi resisted calling for an impeachment inquiry until she had the votes. And last week you had uh, seven freshman members of Congress, uh, mostly women, all with uh, national security or intelligence uh, backgrounds. All from districts that were previously held by Trump. These were the districts that uh, Pelosi was trying to protect in not calling for impeachment. And they came out and they said, this has just crossed a line. Uh, with national security, and whatever the political fallout, it's time to move. And so I think that was really a shift in the caucus. And, you know, the definition of leadership is when you see a crowd, you get out in front of it, and uh, Nancy Pelosi saw where the numbers were going. Now, I agree with Pat. It's hard to see the Republican Senate convicting the president. Um, impeachment is takes a majority vote in the House, but conviction in the Senate would take... 20 Republican senators siding with the Democrats for a supermajority of 67 to convict. But by the time this goes to the Senate, and even though even if it's on a fast track, you're going to see some of those Republican senators are not going to just blindly support this president. as More information is coming out about uh, how they were hiding uh, the substance of other phone calls uh, and the, the cover-up uh, begins. Uh, we begin to see that unfold. I think you're going to see some Republican defections, and even if he mm-hmm. escapes conviction, I don't think that's a great resume to go into a re-election in November uh, with. And so I think I think I think Trump's going to be hurt by this. But didn't
1: we see this with the Clinton impeachment in '98? He broke the law. He committed perjury, right? But when it went to the uh, Senate, not a single Democrat voted to find uh, Clinton guilty. You think this time will be different, Eleanor?
0: Uh, Well, I think, first of all, uh, Clinton had been reelected, so he wasn't facing uh, election. Secondly, it was a Republican Senate that exonerated uh, Clinton because it was personal behavior and people really did see it as a partisan witch hunt. His approval rating actually went up after um, the Senate vote. I just I think this is a completely different experience. And even though Pelosi is probably going to tailor the impeachment articles uh, pretty narrowly, there's a range of behavior uh, that this president has undertaken that really gives uh, the public a-, a lot of unease.
1: So, Pat, would you distinguish the Trump impeachment, if that happens, from the Clinton impeachment?
2: The Clinton impeachment was based on a single count, I think, of basically his behavior and then his lying and his perjury, uh, which was a felony. There's no crime that's been committed by Trump. And let me make the reverse case here. Many of the Democrats in the House and the Congress have wanted to impeach Donald Trump even before he took the oath of office. Everybody in in Washington knows it. Most of the people in the nation know it. I mean, he's been convicted in the minds and hearts of Democrats, and they've just been looking for some kind of charge they can possibly prove against him. Now, Pelosi does have more support in the House than she did, but she took sort of, if you will, the coward's way. She didn't even allow a vote on impeachment. She didn't allow the Judiciary Committee, which is the traditional committee, to deal with the investigations on the impeachment because she was afraid of the results. And I'm not certain she's currently got 218 votes for impeachment in the House to send it over to the Senate because that will be a decision with which the Democrats will have to live. And that will be the issue in the 2020 campaign. That will be the issue in the primaries of all these candidates in which basically February is going to decide our Democratic nominee. There's Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, those four states all in February. And I think the Republicans haven't mounted a good defense this week at all. But this becomes an all-out war between the two parties, and the Democrats are not going to be as they were in Watergate, where they had many Republicans on the Judiciary Committee and many, almost all of them in the House who voted to conduct an impeachment inquiry.
1: Okay, Pat mentioned all-out war between the two major parties in a presidential election 2020. That brings us to Joe Biden. Uh, As vice president in 2016, Joe Biden demanded that Ukraine fire a prosecutor investigating corruption, including an energy company that hired uh, Hunter Biden as a director. Eleanor, uh, some say this impeachment inquiry will actually embolden Trump, that he'll use these investigations as a way of actually subjecting Biden to a lot of scrutiny, that this could actually bring down Biden. That's Pat's argument too. Your response? The problem is that
0: the facts don't line up with the narrative that the president is spreading and Tom Boschert, who was uh, President Trump's first national security adviser, was on television over the weekend, basically you know, saying that he told the president that all the conspiracy theories he is uh, creating about Joe Biden and his son are simply not true and that he should quit it. Uh, The firing of the prosecutor was something the Western world agreed on, the IMF and everybody else, and it was the position of the Obama administration. I agree. I wish Hunter Biden wasn't cashing in on his dad's name, but that, unfortunately, is a pretty common practice in Washington. And he joined the board of that company after the investigation was completed in Ukraine, uh, and so there've been numerous investigations looking at this. There's no there there, but that's not going to stop uh, the president's allies from uh, throwing whatever they can against the wall and trying to bring down uh, Biden in the process. So this is a test for Biden, and I think I think if he can navigate this, he remains the strongest candidate against uh, President Trump. And so I, you see him, and you see uh, the media, the mainstream media, basically are publishing the facts and, and basically pointing out that the president is, is repeatedly lying here in what he is saying about uh, Biden's involvement. Could impeachment hurt
1: Joe Biden? Pat Buchanan.
2: I think the the process, I mean, that Nancy Pelosi has set in motion, I agree with Eleanor. She wants a truncated, short-circuited, fast-track impeachment, get a quick vote in the House, send it over to the Senate, wash your hands of it, let the Senate uh, absolve. Trump if they want to. But I think what the problem for Biden is, I mean, every day his name is in the paper, his son's name. People tend to understand when Joe Biden goes over there and gets a prosecutor fired at the same time, his son, who's investigating a a mining company or an energy company that's paying his son 50,000 a month. Those are numbers people understand. And two weeks after Hunter Biden goes to China with the vice president, He comes back, and his equity fund is fattened up by a billion dollars from the Bank of China. Now, Biden, he's not so strong now, I think, that he can sustain having this all dragged out for four months, and that be the topic of conversation. It's going to be raised in the debate on October 15th. Democrats who want to see Joe brought down, they're going to bring this up. And I don't think Joe has—Joe's strength is based on what Eleanor said. It's that, looked at the polls he— He's Mr. Clean. he's Barack Obama's vice president, he's popular, he's a nice guy, there's no real animus toward him. But all of a sudden, all we have heard about Biden in the last couple of weeks and all we're going to hear about Joe Biden is going to be about the Ukraine and about corruption and about Hunter. And so I mean, I can see various members of Congress trying to call Hunter Biden up to testify mm-hmm.
1: My guests are two of the most seasoned observers of US politics, Pat Buchanan, you can read his columns at buchanan.org, and Eleanor Clift from the Daily Beast, eleanorclift.com. Now, meanwhile, the New York Times and others reported this week that the President pushed our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, in another call, this time on the origins of the Mueller Russia probe. Now, the official view is that the probe began in July 2016. It was set off by a tip from Australia's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, that's Alexander Downer, and his tip was that a Trump campaign advisor uh, had told him in May of 2016 that Russia had compromising information on Hillary Clinton. It's been a big news story in Australia, Pat. Now, the Mueller report exonerated Trump of colluding with Russians. So the question here is, why does Trump care about who ignited the Russia probe? Tom, this is
2: a fundamental point. The Mueller probe took two years, investigated up and down with all manner of subpoenas and interrogations and witnesses and grand jury testimony, and came to an end and concluded that there was no conspiracy, there was no collusion, there was nothing there. So the question then became, how in heaven's name did an investigation this long begin? And the folks went back and they looked at the famous dossier that uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign worked up and worked with the FBI and, and all manner of goings on there. And the FBI, and even though the FBI people's many have been damaged, they said the real origin was George Papadopoulos. Now, Papadopoulos, with the man you mentioned, Mr. Downer, I mean, he met with, <laughs> with George Papadopoulos in a bar, and, you know, it apparently elicited from him the fact that Papadopoulos somehow knew about the Russians were holding on to these emails a fact which had been fed to him by somebody in, in Italy which is going to explain I think eventually what Barr was doing there the key question here Tom is this, people want to know how this Mueller investigation came about and they're beginning to believe that it was a set up by American intelligence who couldn't plant spies etc. and interrogate American citizens, so they got their friends in British intelligence, Australian intelligence, and Italian intelligence to do the dirty work for them, to give them the rationale and the standing to go to courts and get FISA warrants and undertake a national investigation. So the piece of it that belongs to Australia is Mr. Downer's conversation. Mm. And what were the origins of this? okay so Pat's line is that the American
1: people still don't know when this investigation into the Trump campaign really started and who inspired the, the probe so Eleanor what's wrong with uh, investigating the investigators
0: because that's already been going on at the at the uh, Justice Department under under mr. Barr and this convoluted conspiracy theory if you start poking holes in it it, it it's it's made up. And uh, Mueller did not exonerate the president. He said very clearly, if I could have exonerated him, I would have. He was following a Justice Department rule that you do not indict a sitting president. He didn't find evidence of a criminal conspiracy. He found plenty of collusion. And uh, there uh, Ten or twelve instances of obstruction of justice outlined in the report, but Pat is right in the sense that it took it took a long time, and the the um, the testimony that Robert Mueller delivered on the Hill uh, was not declarative. He was he was halting, and he didn't really want to say anything that went beyond his report. If you could get him to just read from his report, it would have been a lot more damning. And so you did not have the public with you. Uh, on impeachment based on the Russia uh, collusion. And the public seems to be understanding this. The support for impeachment has now gone over 50% in the country for the first time.
1: Mm. Okay, well, let's let's look at the foreign policy implications before we wrap things up. Uh, Pat, uh, as you know, Australia is one of the five... U.S. treaty allies in the Asia-Pacific. The U.S. alliance has been a centerpiece of Australian foreign policy since the end of World War II and the onset of the Cold War. How do you think this impeachment inquiry will affect a U.S. foreign policy? Will it do it in any meaningful way?
2: Well, I think Trump ran as an, uh, not as an isolationist, but as an anti-interventionist who would disengage us from the wars of the Middle East and refocus American foreign policy, frankly, in Asia, and, of course, the Australians are some of the best allies the Americans have, have had, certainly in the Pacific War under MacArthur and all the rest of it. So I don't know that either party is going to alter American foreign policy with regard to Australia or Asia. But there is a, I mean, a larger question if you're talking about foreign policy, and that is there's some of us who believe in America, and I think Trump is one of them, is deeply overextended. We've undertaken too many alliances, too many engagement treaties and handed out too many war guarantees to too many countries, to too many places of the world. And this is inevitably, I think, there's going to be a retrenchment
1: coming. Now, Eleanor, finally, Trump just recently amplified the comment of a supporter who said impeachment could create civil war-like fracture in the United States. Where does this end?
0: Well, the president is feeding the frenzy about a coming civil war, which is mainly can be found on right-wing sites. And uh, I think... But to be fair, though,
1: doesn't the polarisation go both ways?
0: I think the polarisation about civil war and using that phrase is coming from the right. We started this conversation comparing this impeachment to Bill Clinton's. You know, Bill Clinton con- constantly said, I'm doing the work of the American people. He did not talk about impeachment. This president has made impeachment his sole initiative. Uh, and he had, um, you know, something like, I don't know, dozens of tweets over the weekend and basically uh, retweeting a, uh, a conservative pastor of a mega church in Dallas, basically saying any attempt to remove this office, uh, this president from office would... Uh, a trigger a civil war-like division. Uh, so I don't think the Democrats are proceeding uh, with this in a partisan way. I think they're moving very carefully and and legalistically. And I think they're trying to keep a lid on this while I think the president is reacting emotionally. He's erratic to start with. And you were talking about foreign policy. I think foreign leaders really don't know what to expect from him and they don't really trust his word, his credibility. We barely have a functioning government here. He doesn't have permanent officials in many key jobs, likes it better that way.
1: Pat, doesn't Eleanor have a point there? Hasn't Trump made the polarisation in Washington more toxic? I mean, all this civil war talk. Well, let me talk
2: first to the civil war matter. Uh, Pastor Jeffers said it was a fracture in the country, like a Civil War fracture. And I think it's a political statement, not a military one. I think he has a point. Uh, What Donald Trump did was crush and defeat and humiliate and astound the whole national establishment, which has held power in this country basically under both parties for a long period of time. And it was humiliated and defeated And middle America has really taken Trump to heart. And, uh, I mean, he's got 90% support among Republicans, which is astonishing. He's more than Reagan. And if there is an impeachment, I disagree with Eleanor here, this is 100% partisan. There's not a single Republican in the Senate who's for impeachment, and I don't know of any in the House who are for impeachment. This is purely partisan. It's the Democratic move. If they did succeed in stinking up the Trump presidency by Smearing him with impeachment, or if something happened to Trump as a consequence and he were removed, I do think there'd be a permanent hole, a permanent alienation in American politics where a part of the country would simply say, The whole thing stinks. We got an opportunity. We elected the one guy we liked. He went in there. They tried to impeach him and defeat him, and they went after him day after day after day. And so I think that what that would do is blow a hole, I think, in the American democratic system.
1: Pat, Eleanor, it's always great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. That was Pat Buchanan, an advisor to Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and Eleanor Clift, a columnist with The Daily Beast and a contributor to MSNBC. You're an RN. Looking back. In retrospect. the benefit of hindsight. If only we'd known then what we know now. Well, Jacques Chirac was a giant of French politics, and he recently died at age 86. He had one of the longest political careers in Europe, twice president, twice prime minister, and 18 years as mayor of Paris. Not surprisingly, he's been subjected to tributes such as this France 24 English segment. Jacques Chirac carefully cultivated his image, that of a man who loved to live life to the fullest while remaining unpretentious and down to earth. Chirac loved his country, its products and its traditions, and above all he wanted to be in contact with its people. What remains of Chirac today, the main thing that everyone remembers, is his banter and his honesty. Now in my judgement, Chirac will be remembered internationally for leading France's strong opposition to the US-led invasion of Iraq, In 2003, now at the time, his anti-war position attracted widespread hostility and ridicule, especially across America. Frog-bashing rhetoric escalated to fever pitch. This was first uttered by a character in The Simpsons. Bonjour, you cheese-eating surrender monkeys. U.S. restaurants changed the names of French fries to Freedom Fries, as this cook told CNN in early 2003.
2: We opened up our menu and the word French just took us and grabbed us. So all of a sudden we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change our French fries to Freedom Fries in support of our uh, president, also our troops, to show support.
1: And who can forget Donald Rumsfeld, the then Defence Secretary. Remember how he singled out Chirac's France as being part of a foot-dragging old
2: Europe? Now, you're thinking of Europe as Germany and France. I don't. I think that's old Europe. If you look at the entire NATO Europe today, the centre of gravity is shifting to the east.
1: Indeed, it seemed like France had become public enemy number two in the US after the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. However, Chirac's stance was popular at home. Before the invasion, a poll gave him the highest approval rating ever accorded to a French president, 90% anti-war sentiments were widespread on the streets of Paris. Here's Chirac in early 2003 on why the Iraq threat did not justify an invasion.
2: L'Irak ne représente pas aujourd'hui une menace immédiate telle qu'elle justifie une guerre
1: Now, Chirac himself experienced military combat. The man they called Le Bulldozer was on the front line during the brutal Algerian war. For Chirac, the horror of war was no mere phrase. This is what he said. War is always a last resort. It's always proof of failure. It's always the worst of solutions because it brings death and misery. That's what Chirac said a week ago before the US-led Coalition of the Willing invaded Iraq. The French President's opposition to UN resolutions for the Iraq war was not based on any great affection for Saddam Hussein, it was based on his foreign policy realism. Chirac knew that containment, naval blockade, no-fly zone, deterrence, they may have lacked the political sex appeal of liberation, but it would have avoided the kind of unintended consequences that a liberated Iraq would deliver. Any occupation of Iraq, this was Chirac's warning, would be a nightmare. The cheerleaders of the invasion disagreed. The Hawks, you see, they believe that the liberation of the Iraqi people would lead to a flourishing democracy and viable state. His President George W. Bush at the American Enterprise Institute on the eve of
2: the war. A liberated Iraq can show the power of freedom to transform that vital region by bringing hope and progress into the lives of millions.
1: As for Tony Blair, just before the invasion, he met with Chirac. The French president warned Blair that the so-called liberators would precipitate a civil war. A Shia majority, Chirac warned, should not be confused with what we understand as democracy. Afterwards, according to the BBC, Blair told a colleague, quote, poor old Jack, he just doesn't get it. Well, who got it? Before the invasion, the Baathists led by Saddam Hussein, like the Hashemites and the British before them, they had allowed the minority Sunni Arabs to hold a disproportionate share of power and resources. For the majority Shia, that meant brutal suppression. But the US-led invasion of Iraq, it changed all that. As Middle East expert and past guest on our show, Valley Nasser, here explains.
2: The Iraq war, in a way, opened the door for this uh, imbalance to be corrected. So the war uh, brought down a Sunni dictatorship, which among other things was suppressing its majority Shia population. The post-war era allowed for elections and elections reflected the majority number of the Shias. So for the first time you had the birth of a Shia Arab state, which had not existed before in history.
1: And what followed? A violent rebalancing act in Iraqi society, descent into anarchy and bloodshed, a breakdown of the Iraqi state, the emergence of Sunni jihadists, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and the decline of American prestige and power across the globe. This is what, in essence, Jacques Chirac was predicting in the lead-up to war in March 2003. For his pains, he was denounced as a wimp and as an anti-American, yet his warnings were prescient. Given everything we now know about post-war Iraq, history, I would argue, has been kind to Jacques Chirac. Well, that's the program for this week and if you'd like to hear today's show again or any of our past episodes, you can. You just go to our website, abc.net.au slash rn and follow the links from there or do it the easy way and download the ABC Listen app. You can subscribe to Between the Lines and check out other great podcasts while you're there. A favourite of mine is Saturday Extra, my colleague Geraldine Dug. She doesn't miss a trick and her interviews with international guests have a different take on global current affairs. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great
1: ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.